to the Voice of HK podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Badgick-Smith, and in over a decade, I have supported hundreds of older adults to improve their well-being in late life. This podcast offers an authentic insight into aged care, practical tips, and all the inspiration to keep you going. I truly believe that every older person needs to feel heard, loved, and understood. And it is my mission to halve the depression rates in Australian aged care facilities by 2022. Hi everyone, I'm very excited to be interviewing a good friend of mine. Maury Boise Barlin is an engagement specialist. He's a creative engagement specialist and he's actually going to tell us a little bit about what he's been up to this year, working with clients during COVID, supporting his peers and firstly about the role of creative therapeutic engagement specialists and what they do. Welcome, Moz. Hello. <laughs> so nice to be talking to you. And um, just I just got your book uh, just the other day. I'm giving you a plug now. Just got your book and I have, uh, haven't started reading yet. I've got a, it's, it's next on the list and I look, really look forward to reading that. Thank you. And I look forward to catching up with you in person so that I can sign it. I, I don't think about signing these things, but yeah. Um, Moz, tell me a little bit about what, what you do as a creative engagement specialist and how do you explain to people what it is? I've seen you do it and I know bits about it, but, you know, when you first meet someone, like how do they know what it is you do with the older people? Yes, it is, it is kind of hard to describe, but I pretty much just say that I work with people with dementia uh, doing humour therapy and I say that if I really think about what it is, you could say that it's kind of smart arsery and banter and music and then they kind of laugh because they say what do you mean smart arsery and then you know then we're talking about what it actually is because if I step back from what I do I, I was seeing about 60 elders in one-on-one sessions across about five different partner sites residential services that was prior to COVID and my job was to focus on people that had a uh, that were living with dementia uh, that could be at any kind of stage of their dementia. But primarily what a service wants to do is to try and find ways to work with people that are having re- reactive or behaviours of distress, what we once termed challenging behaviours, and then they want to look at the people that are self-isolating. So when someone's self-isolating, we know that that's a slide very quickly down into you know isolation, depression, and then it's a very difficult path to and probably, you know, almost impossible to rebuild. So my role is to find creative ways, creative strategies to engage with them and to, well, explore their capacity for socialisation, whether that socialisation can turn into uh, large group kind of engagement sessions, whether they can become once again uh, mixed with some people or, or whether it's just formulating a relationship with, say, me, and then once we've done that and explored that, my role then is is to share my strategies with other staff members who are caring for the elder. And, and that would mean that I'd be exploring their preferred interaction style. So people that self-isolate, they may 
I mean, I guess what I've got to remember too is that they may have always self-isolated. It might not be a new thing, but I think it seems to me that in what I've experienced over the years is that when people go into residential age care, if you're living with dementia, I, I imagine it must be something of a, an existential crisis. So the world doesn't make sense to you in the way that it once did. And everyone talks to you differently. And even though that's respectful and lovingly, it's very measured and clear and nice. And people don't do that to patronize you. They do it to be clear and concise and to not confuse. But when you're being spoken to like that, it's like when you've had an accident and people gather around you and they try and make sure you're okay. And then you get someone that's really calm and they've got a certain manner about them and they're speaking to you in a way and it's when you know, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> There's something wrong. And I think that people sense this. And I think if we think about people with dementia and this is all guesswork, really. I mean, no, nobody can really say for sure. But when you start to interact with people and they're talking to you in that manner, I, I think that you start to sense that something is not right. And if we think about people living with dementia, then I imagine that trying to make sense of the interaction, trying to understand, you, you know, you may lose the capacity to interpret a social transaction but you never lose the capacity, as far as I can see, to have an emotion or a feeling about that interaction. And so I think that you're living a lot on emotions. You're responding emotionally. And we know that the, you can still, people with dementia can still respond. That's, that's very evident emotionally. And so the pathways for understanding aren't clear. And so when you mix lack of understanding or the inability to no longer comprehend with extreme emotions, then that must be a very frightening place. So I'm trying to bring joy to that place. Yeah. A couple of questions come to my mind. Is everyone that you see diagnosed with dementia? No. A large, a large majority would be. I'd say, I'd say the figures would be, if I, I think, around about 80%. So, you know, there's that 20% that aren't. And that's usually because there's, you know, a, a concern for, you know, the, the isolation that they're experiencing or that they're sort of trying to live with or usually mm. and so you've got yes yeah, so you've got some most of them have dementia to some extent and when you initially engage with people in residential care residents consumers clients or whatever term you know now we're referring to people in in residential care are you given any background information about them like are you given you know, their medical records or how do you, how do you know who is in front of you? Mm. So I would work primarily with uh, the lifestyle team is, is usually where, where it starts. But I, I do want to set some goals with someone in a clinical space that so we can do some clinical planning and having some clinical follow-up to what I do, but also so that I'm answerable, you know, for the strategies that I use. So I would sit down and I'm, I look at their, their lifestyle history is where I would start to know the person first. And then I want to know more about their, their diagnosis. And the diagnosis can be really helpful or it can really not give me anything at all. Because what I'm looking at is I'm, I'm looking inherently at the strengths and what remains and, and, and too much concern around the various diagnoses can sometimes 
you know, kind of make you make decisions that aren't based on the person that's in front of you. And let's face it, everyone has a different response. But but a good example, Julie, of where it's handy to know is in Parkinson's, for example, because if someone has Parkinson's, I need to understand that probably, unless it's a mixed dementia, they're probably very, very cognitively capable of understanding what's happening around them, but just can't get their body to respond. So it's important that I understand that. But even more importantly, if someone has freezes, like if you've got someone with Parkinson's that has freezes, I need to know that if I'm walking with them or if I get them to do something physically, I need to understand that that freeze could occur at any given point and that I need to think about risk versus benefit, you know, in in some of the things that I may do. So the lifestyle is very important. But what happens in my experience is a lot of lifestyle and diversional therapists are frustrated because often there's a ton of forms you get, and I know this from experience, a ton of forms you get to fill out when you arrive in aged care with your mum, your dad, your auntie, your, your partner, and it's, you've got to fill all these forms out, these legalities, and there's all, all sorts of you know, end-of-life you know, procedure. You've got so much to do, and the very document that probably matters the most, I think, is arguably... The light, tell me about dad, tell me about mum. And they largely go, you know, pretty scantily filled out, sometimes not at all. And then there's the family who don't realise the goldmine of information that they sit on. They have this information that they're sitting on, family anecdotes and interests. So this is not known. And if this is not known, then my role is to unearth that. That's what I need to find out. And so to so once I get that information, I can move forward. So a good example is a guy that I met that was all I was told was he was aggressive. He'll hit you. Uh, He came from a fire. There was a fire at the former service and he was brought in here. So, okay, he's aggressive and he hits. Right, okay. So what do you know about him? Um, He's really angry. (laughs) Can I have a look? Can I have a look at his... um, So this person was... This is the first day at a new site. This is many years ago. and, And the person was not someone that was incompetent or someone that was uncaring. It's just what they, everyone in the service had talked about and they were in fear of this gentleman. So I said, let's have a look at his paperwork and there's not much there, they said, but there was three things there. He was from Juni. He used to be a butcher and he used to get on the wallaby track or something. Someone had written, he used to get on the wallaby track or something. So I know from those three things, I know Juneau is a beautiful old town with a beautiful old street. So I, have a, I had a tea towel from Juneau, oddly enough. And I knew that uh, butchers, okay, well, on the wallaby track means get on, it, it's an itinerant worker. You get on the wallaby track, you follow the wallaby track for work. Shearers do that. But butchers, some butchers do that. They butcher and go around and butcher on land. I also know that butchers speak backwards. They have a backwards speak, which is called Reggie Tub Clat, which is butcher talk backwards. So. I wrote out, to cut a long story short, and this is probably my most, this is the experience I learned the most from. I wrote out in a couple of sentences backwards, hey, Reggie Tub, how are you? Reggie Tub is butcher. Hey, Reggie Tub, what's going on? Hey, Reggie Tub, are you there? And I just referred to him as Reggie Tub. And I said this a few times and I, I had the bit of paper, I practiced. And when I said it, I could see this man sitting forward. He was in a chair, so he, was, he wasn't able to mobilize but he had this upper body agility and they said that that's where he hit. So I knew I had to be about an arm's length out from him. And so what I did was I said, I sat there and I said to my partner, don't say anything, just let it sit. 
and I watched Reggie Tubb and his eyes were cold and he was lost in some, you know, some uh, grimace, you know, there was this world that he was, he, and, and I was thinking about all the negative chemicals that were pumping around his body, the cortisol, and thinking, wow, this is a terrible place. And then his face changed ever so slightly and he looked up at me and he said, all right, how's you? Wow. What a breakthrough. Oh, I was stunned and uh, my partner was squeezing my arm. The lifestyle person was squeezing my arm. And I said, I'm all right, Richie Tubb. They tell me you're from Junee. He said, yeah, you know it. I said, yeah. And anyway, we started talking. I had the ukulele around my strap. I use the ukulele, so I use music, which I can, can talk about a bit more. But, well, this is a good example of activating somebody with music. So as I sat about an arm's length away from him and I kneel, I kneel in front of people. I was below his eye level. He was looking at me and then he looked at my ukulele and I knew that was the moment. So I said, oh, I've, I've got a song for you, Reggie Tub. Would you like Click Go The Shears or Road to Gundagai? And he said, oh, Road to Gundagai, thanks. And I played it and he started clapping. Amazing. But it's not. It's not magic. It's not magic, but the connection was there. It, it was, as you said at the onset, it's the knowledge of those important things and telling me he was aggressive, that he was angry, that he would hit me were not the things that I needed to know. They're important. <laughs> yes. But this, I, I talk about this interaction a lot because I, I learned an incredible amount from it. So what came from that then was that I suggest, the manager wanted to see me at the end of the session because she said, wow, I heard you, you know, Mr. I won't say his name. And um, I said, don't call him that ever again. Call him Reggie Tub. Here's why. Here's a song he likes. This is how I would treat him. and. Some people did, some didn't, and, and also culturally there's, you know, and someone not from Australian culture might feel, and some people from, <laughs> from our culture feel funny about singing, it's their workplace, but those that chose to interact with him in that manner got a lot more out of him, and it took the fear out of him, you know, it took the fear away, that's what broke with that. So that's an example of what I might do. Now, that's a golden moment, that's not every moment, but that's what I'm aiming for. Every time, that's what I aim for is that breakthrough. That's what I want. And I guess it's, you know, um, thank you for sharing that example because I think it really highlights that when we work with older people in aged care environments that we never know when we're going to get those learning experiences because you're on the go, you're at different places, different days, and, you know, there's so many variables. How will the person be in the morning versus afternoon? And you, you caught that person at the right time, at the right place. And I think it will stay with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, it has. And I've been, I was allowed to take a photo of him because my butcher gave me a number of posters and stuff to give him. And we put them up and I had a little Cape Grim hat, a little butcher's cap, a black cap they gave me. And I have a photograph of Reggie Tubb with the hat on which his family allowed me to keep and I still have it on my phone. It reminds me, reminds me of what I do. Yeah. But you're right. It was timing too. Like I caught him in the right moment and said the right things. And the rest is history. There you go. Moz, let's talk a little bit about the Outside In Collective. Um, I'm interested to, to hear from you about why is mentoring your peers so important and what inspired you to do that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've sort of been thinking a lot about that a little bit. And I think, I think it's always somehow happened organically that I've always somehow surrounded myself with wonderful mentors or, or they've stumbled upon me and, and sought to encourage me. 
uh, you know, some were colleagues, and I think, you know, Andy McDonnell from the old Arts Health Institute days, you know, people like that that you work with, that you challenge each other, where you have a, a sparky, respectful relationship that really stretches you both when you work differently. He works a lot slower than I do, but he's, I feel his work is a lot deeper. So we pull each other in different directions, which is really healthy. And that's mentorship. I think is we often think of mentors as someone that's far more experienced than us and older and, and wiser. But I also think, and I, whilst that's true, I also think that these mentors are also your colleagues. And, and so it's a natural, I don't know, I'm an oldest child and I don't know if that makes it, yeah, maybe this is a session with you later, uh, Julie, but as, as the oldest, I'd always sort of been the one that kind of led things and was the expert, the, the know-it-all. And so I like to give my opinion and I'm pretty opinionated, but there's a lot of, I think if you think about mentorship and this is what's changed from that child that was the eldest bossy boots, is that it's a two-way thing, just like the interactions with my elders are, that you're also learning. If you just treat it as a learning exercise with yourself, then it's a true two-way system. And I think a feedback kind of loop. And, and if you get to that stage and you're mentoring or you're being mentored, when it's a learning thing, I think it's much more, it enhances you in a, a different way. I think it's, it's much deeper. And I think it's more challenging and I think it's more exciting. It's more vibrant, you know. So with the collective, like I guess we'll talk about window therapy, how that evolved later. But, but with the collective, what I wanted to do was to share this idea that I had and let everyone have it, you know, and not just the collective, but I've shared it broadly. Like with the clown doctors, I've shared information, although they have their own kind of way of, of doing it. I've, I've sent a document that I share with lots of people all over the world. And sharing that information was really important because I wanted to just, uh, that was for the elders. It wasn't something to be owned. But I also wanted to create a space for a lot of creative engagement specialists that are out there that are no longer working or had retired or when, when this company folded many years ago, a few years ago now, they were lost to aged care. And I wanted to see them come back because they're really talented. And I, wanted, I didn't see people doing this kind of work so much in aged care. So I wanted to, you know, share the work. Then I wanted to create opportunity. And then that meant creating appetite. And to do that, it was a, a case of sharing what I understood in my work in selling. I mean, I, I'm quite full. I've got, I can't take on any more work. But I wanted to share what I knew amongst the group and create a situation where it enabled them to find ways to get work and to create the opportunities for themselves. Because if the work lives on, then I live on, my work lives on too. We're stronger if the work exists. And so I thought, well, if I can inspire them with this idea and they can see visually what I'm doing and then they kind of get encouraged to do it and then they make it happen and then they start delivering it and then they start telling me what they're doing and their ideas are better, then that's true mentorship. You know, we're going together, we're mentoring each other. It's like co-mentorship, I think. And so Everyone grows from, from that. And I, I think the days of being a leader or, well, I guess I'm leading it at the moment, but I think that if you lead in a way where you're leading and you're providing all the examples and all the knowledge, it's just, I don't think, I think that's very old school and I don't think it's very satisfying and you don't grow because you're kind of busy dishing out your knowledge. So 
now that there's a few people working, you know, I'm starting, I'm talking to them and go, oh my God, I didn't think of that. This is very exciting. And so I'm really interested in creating situations where people are enabled to, to create their own opportunities. And then that way, everyone benefits and they feel empowered. And I'm not their boss. I don't own their work. They are creative geniuses in their own right. And so I get to work with them and alongside them. And then we all grow. And then hopefully the sector knows more about what we're doing. Absolutely. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Absolutely. And I think also there's that element of isolation for us as professionals visiting aged care homes that, you know, if it's just you doing your own thing, that you can't really connect that much with someone else unless they've got something in common. And, you know, as a psychologist working in aged care, I know in early days I found it also quite difficult because there weren't many people doing what I was doing. So there was always something nice about having a peer group or someone you can go back to and bounce ideas and compare. And as you say, everyone's got their own style and what they do and how they do it because just looking at your collective, you've got people who do it through arts, music, dance, drama, jokes, yarns, imaginary play, cheek, slapstick and connection. And I I guess, you know, everyone can do bits and pieces differently and they've got strengths and weaknesses and, yeah, I... I admire what you guys do. And, and on that, like, because I think that's the key is that everyone does do it different. My style is different from Andy's, for example. But, I mean, I'm curious, you know, because, like, do you, do you see the same thing in, in the world of psychology? Like, do you see people have different strengths and, and methodologies, you know, and, and different ways of doing things? Is that as well? I think it's also not necessarily because, I mean, as psychologists, we need to use evidence-based therapeutic approaches. And... I haven't been delivering therapy for quite a while now. I've had one home that I've been going to, but mainly been doing more so education and training and supervising psychologists and doing different type of work. But I think it's also about the element of human connection and what you described, what you had with that client, the butcher, you know, it just illustrates, you know, the the connection is there, but it, it can really depend on that individual and the person that is in front of them. And so with having a number of psychologists who go to aged care homes, sometimes the connection can be better if it's a male psychologist, if it's someone who's older, if it's someone who's younger, if it's someone who's from a similar cultural background, if it's someone, you know, with my Eastern European background, the other day I met a gentleman in a nursing home and he connected with me so well because he was, he's Russian, And so for him, you know, he just wanted to talk about the fact that he's been to former Yugoslavia. He was in Sarajevo in 1942. And, you know, for him, that was that connection, you know, even though I, like, it wasn't something that I could really enlighten him with my knowledge because I barely remember that place myself. But for him, that allowed him to open up about many aspects of his life. And he said, I have not shared this with anyone else in this facility but I want you to know this is what's been going on for me and these are the you know these are the issues that I've had and this is why I feel like I feel and so I can't credit all that just to my knowledge my expertise I think it was just that we had that connection at that point of time and I wonder if there was you know a male psychologist would the connection be stronger would it be weaker you know it's impossible to have a strong connection with every single person Yes, 
I agree with that totally. And and I think sometimes what I learned was there was a time when I worked for a company called Arts Health Institute, which I know you're familiar with, but we often replace each other or cover each other if people were sick. And it was interesting because there were times when I would say, you know, like I would see somebody and I would see a difference and I go, oh, I'm a, I'm a male. They're usually working with Shirley, you know, or somebody that's, oh, that's not working. And um, sometimes I would say, you know, I think this service would be better if we sent Trudy in, for example, because I think the general flavor, they would suit a woman's energy better than a male energy and then vice versa. It's really interesting. And I think you have to, and I guess, I don't know, I wonder if it's the same for you. I, I often have to say, because, you know, I think my strike rate's pretty high. I pride myself in being able to crack the toughest nuts, but I don't crack everybody. You know, there are times when people, I just don't, it doesn't click for them. It's a bit, I'm reluctant to say it, but I will. It's sometimes the work of an engagement specialist and the work we do, because you're kind of like this court jester. You're trying to be provocative. It's not always appropriate to be provocative, so sometimes you moderate it, but Generally speaking, you're trying to provoke responses. So you're working off the response. You want to know how, what, so it's improvised, right? And I guess my point is, is that when you're doing that, when you're provoking people and trying to get a response and then creating a spontaneity so that it's not a performance, because what I do isn't performing, it's improvisation, really. And you're in that jester role, you're trying to get a response. Ah, got that response. I got the funny bone. It's kind of like a date because you're kind of looking at someone like, do I want to spend time with you? Do I like you? Is this a long-term, short-term thing? Well, you know, so you're, you're trying to kind of dance. It's kind of a dance is probably a better and safer way to say it, but it's kind of that energy where it's kind of a dance. And I really love that spontaneity, but a lot of people find it scary. You know, a lot of actors, because my background is as an actor, but I was very big on improvisation. So I'm very comfortable in that realm, but some of the, artists as they move into this work struggle a little bit initially with the improvisation side of it they want to perform and anyone you i mean not anyone i shouldn't say that but it's easier to get it's easy to get entertainers to come in and perform to people that's not what we do and you know so you're playing a song and it might evoke something and then you need to validate you might you might need to open that up and say wow does that make you sad and, you know, then you open something up and then there's validation and there's, you know, there's all sorts of, I guess, connecting points and tricks, really, that you're trying to figure out, where do I go from here? And you're walking a tightrope. You really are. Because you're, you're dealing with somebody, you're, you're dealing with a human, you're dealing with someone opposite you that may be carrying great hurt. And you have to also be aware that, you know, not, not being trained as a psychologist you have to be aware that you're opening potentially wounds up and you need to be careful that you don't overstep the boundary. And I think that most of us humans kind of know how to sit with someone that we've got a relationship with and open up some sores. That's okay, but you've got to have that relationship first so that the safety is there. So you're creating a relationship. So whilst you're being this jester and being this smart ass, as I called it, you're also trying to be empathetic and you're trying to connect with people in a meaningful way and be respectful at the same time that's a really hard line to walk absolutely and this is exactly why i wanted to do these interviews with a wide range of professionals who work with older people because you know not everyone 
needs to see a psychologist who has moved into an aged care facility. Not everyone needs to, you know, um, be entertained. And there's a clear difference between entertainment and what you do as a creative engagement specialist. There's a difference between the music therapist and putting Andre Ryu on repeat, you know, throughout the day. And I think that it's just so important for others to understand about those differences and to appreciate and recognise the value in a, a wide range of service providers. Mm. And there's a lot of people doing some great work out there. Oh, I mean- absolutely, absolutely. This episode is proudly brought to you by the Enhancing Emotional Wellbeing in Late Life Workshop. This essential training is for anyone supporting older adults seeking practical strategies to reduce isolation and loneliness and help older adults make new and exciting as well as fulfilling moments. Find out more today from wisecare.com.au. Now, I know you've done lots of interviews uh, more recently with COVID and with your introduction of the window therapy. Would you be able to summarise briefly for our listeners what is window therapy and why is it so effective? So window therapy is a holding pattern, really. Window therapy was a a response to the COVID curtain, as I call it. The visitor precautions, yeah, the the restricted visitor precautions that came into aged care when COVID first kind of came to the forefront of our, you know, of our world. And so, you know, I was seeing people, like I said, one-on-one. So I was seeing 60-odd people, and that's extremely dangerous in terms of, as we know, seeing um, people that work in different uh, residents. So I was slowly getting called saying, no, you can't come in anymore. So, and, you know, very nicely, not quite as direct as that, but I thought, well, there's got to be a way to do this. So I went out to see one of my managers who hadn't called and she said, what are you going to do? What have you got up your sleeve, Moz? And I said, well, I've got an idea. I don't need to come in. I can do it at their windows. And she laughed and she said, how does it work? And I said, I, I've got no idea. And she said, okay, give it a go. Don't let me down and take photos. So I started to engage at the window. So basically what I do is I come to the window and the whole premise is, is that I'm trying to get in. I'm trying to get them to let me in. Now, the important part in this is it needs to someone on the inside, I call them the insider, which is generally a lifestyle uh, activities uh, or diversional therapist working with the people on the inside and doing it in a fun, playful way, not, you know, not scary or not, you know, not making it frightening, but making it playful. No, we can't let him in, can we? And sometimes they don't know why they can't let me in. So I'm trying to get in. I'm using everything. I might need to go to the toilet. I need a drink. They bring me drinks of water and pour them down the glass sometimes. I see the cup of teas coming around. They usually have morning tea around that time. So I'm saying, oh, if you let me in, I'll make my own tea. So I'm mischievously like the naughty nephew trying to get them to let me in and they're doing their best to keep me out. So, and the role of the insider is just to enable that. But also for people further down the track with uh, dementia to also make sure that they feel safe, that they have some sort of, maybe some sort of idea of what's going on or knowing that it's a game or that it's funny. They might inter- say what's happening uh, to someone that's uh, vision impaired or repeating stuff for people that can't hear so well. And so they're playfully trying to keep me out whilst I'm trying to get in. And what I do is that I can get people to the window and I sing songs, you know, like I use the ukulele to a bit of activation. I I think music activates people in a way that other forms don't. And so I try and tap into some music and then 
I try to get people to the window and I've been using a chalk neon chalk marker and I've been playing tic-tac-toe, for example. So I get two people to play against me, against themselves, and I, I control the marker and might make play with that. I might draw glasses on the window and look in. They might look out. There's lots of photos of the elders looking out through the glasses at me. You might have seen. I might just draw things. I draw a naughty board. Sometimes I do a naughty board. So I write their name. I say, who's that? And I, I write their names up. And you've got to write backwards when you do this because they're looking out. So you have to write backwards. So the trick is to use capitals. <laughs> and so you write, I get all their names up. So that way I learn it because I've been working at places where I didn't have a connection new services. So I write their names up so I get to know their names. And as they do things or something happens, I might give them a cross. And then that encourages the cheek, you see. And then they start complaining about being up on the board or they try and be naughty to get more marks against the board. And then I won't give them marks. I give it to other people. <laughs> and you start with the lifestyle person, you start marking them. And at the end of the day, the punishment is they either they have to let me in or make me a cup of tea or usually have to go and see the manager. So basically, I'm outside the window playing, trying to be naughty, playing some songs, telling some jokes. You know, I might, I might get a hammer out of my bag. The other day, I got a Nerf gun. You know those foam Nerf bullets? Yep. Yeah, one of the mob out at they attacked me at the window with Nerf guns. So I went and bought myself a Nerf gun, and um, that's quite fun. Yeah, and I, I draw on the window, and I just do whatever it takes to create some mischief really is what I'm trying to do and then provoke responses and from that response that's the beginning of what I improvise with. How long do sessions last for? Well there's different formats because I think one of the problems with program like this is you can't template it. Now I know that's probably I don't know how that goes in evidence-based research but you know each sort of service has its own personality so at Widden. I do a, an hour and 15 minutes of a session just before their lunchtime. And that's a straight session. That's how long that goes for. At other services, I might do three different kind of what we call sets, like three short sessions of half an hour where I'll do something for half an hour, then I'll leave, and then they will um, take the elders and move them to another activity. And then they'll bring some more elders in, and then I come back and I do something for half an hour with them. There's variables to that. The, it, I do much more one-on-one -on -one sessions where we bring them to the lavender window. So the, the lavender is at the end there. It's a lounge room and it's got some nice windows there and they can sit one-on-one -on -one and I can interact with, with them there. And then at, I'm doing a big group engagement session at the window and then there's a, a session later which is a bit more of a, of a chin wag and a chat and, and that's more difficult through a window. But, um, yeah, I, I, I sent some pictures to the lifestyle team. So we looked at sideshows and carnivals and I sent all these sideshow pictures, which they looked at and they brought them to the window and told me a little bit about them. And, you know, people, you know, the bearded lady and um, the, the man with four legs and all those kind of wacky sideshow. Right. So do you, do you have a, like a template that you follow week by week or do you kind of have to wing it on the spot? Because like, you really are working with the energy that's there at that day, at that time. So you have some resources up your sleeve or how do you, how do you decide what to do on the day? Or is that like when you drive, when you, leave the, you know, when you leave the site, you just go, wow, I did not expect to be doing that today? Well, there's a bit of all of that. So I've got... You know, when in acting, in, when you do improvise, it's, it's called an offer. You go in with what they call an offer. 
So you might go in and you might say, have you seen my barbecue? And the other actor, if they're worth their, their salt, they'll go, ah, I used it. I'm not sure where I put it. And so you have what they call an offer. So you just, you've got to go in with offers. And sometimes the offer is a prop. Sometimes it's a song. Sometimes it's a joke. I use a lot of bad jokes, really bad jokes and um, knock-knock jokes. But props are a really good thing, as are A4 pictures that I take. I've got flippy folders. I've got about 20 of them. And they might have old pictures of old tractors or old Fords or Holdens. They might have old um, ovens and stoves. They might have grevilleas. They might have some of my family photos of me as a baby and as a small child. I've got some really delightful photos. And then there's really old-time ones that i found. So I've just got all these props and things that I take to the window. And some days I will give myself a theme. Some days I will think I'm going to do a tonight show. Today I'm going to do some sport, you know. Today I'm going to hose the window down. <laughs> and it depends on what I'm allowed to do. But um, it's not really templated. Because I'm asking people to improvise with me, I need to be able to go in with some strong offers. And I think that I'm not creating a whole scenario or a performance. What I'm creating is a couple of triggers, hopefully positive triggers, that trigger something from them. And then that's when it bounces back. So by getting the reactions, that's what I work with. So it's just about using different things. I went a while ago, I went in with a hammer. So I had a big oversized hammer and I just drew a target on the window and I didn't say anything. So I started with a cross actually. And then I rubbed the, and I got the hammer out and they were going, oh, oh he's got a hammer. He's gonna, I said, are you going to let me in? They were like, no, we're not letting you in. Why can't I come in? We don't know, but you're not coming in. That went on. So then I went, okay. And I, put, I, I stretched up with the hammer and then I went, hang on. And I rubbed it out and then I drew a target. And then there was lots of, so that was generative. I'm generating a lot of discussion that goes on inside and I'm waiting for something to happen. And then, of course, I, you know, got the hammer and they go, they started counting. They went one, two, that just happened. And then I dropped the hammer on my foot. I start bouncing around and then I'm holding it and they're going, oh, is he all right? And I'm going, please tell, call the nurse. So they, you know, they called the nurse. <laughs> I'm trying to get in. The nurse won't let me in. And I'm holding up, look, I've got a face mask and some sanitizer, you know. And so that's what we played with. And I don't always think of those things before I just took the hammer. I didn't know what I was going to do apart from thought, I'll use this to get in. Okay. Wow. It really is that, yeah, on-the-spot creativity that you have to come up with as well. And and I can relate to, you know, a, a lot of what you're saying because in my own line of work, I've had to do it with the, the group program that I've been running for residents when they're first moving to an aged care home. And I know that it's no good coming up with content for one hour if they can't relate to it and it's about being able to change it and doing short bursts of activities that you know they might do for 10 minutes and then we swap tasks and 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 going through it that way it's funny isn't it because you don't know what's going to float somebody's boat you really don't and you think you have a great idea i guess you've done this right where you think this is a cracker of an idea and you go in and it goes over like a brick budgie there's no the cricket's you can hear them and you're like, wow, that didn't work at all. And you have to adapt really quickly, don't you? Absolutely. Briefly, I just wanted to ask you, given that you've... You say briefly to me. You know you can't say briefly to me. <laughs> I just wanted to know from your experience having been to many aged care homes and, you know, if, if you had a magic wand, which you probably have already, what would you like to see happen in aged care homes? 
time. More time. Yeah, I, I think that this is the greatest loss. There's, there's a wonderful man called Dr. Bill Thomas from the Eden Alternative, and he does this beautiful talk where he talks about time and the world spinning faster and faster and has less care, less compassion, and less time for things. And one of the things that the people that sit in these homes that we work in, our elders, they come from a different world which had so much more time and I think that they still live in that continuum. They still have a lot of time. And around them are these frantic people who work in pretty much a cold, kind of hard, rigid, unforgiving system that's trying to deliver care in a very short amount of time. And I think that I've spoken to some staff members who kind of say that they got into aged care to engage with people and they don't even have time for it. And I think that they, and and there's a great sense of guilt from them. So someone said to me once that I don't make eye contact sometimes because I'm scared that if I do, I'm going to have to engage with them. And then I'm going to have to say, I can't talk and I'm going to have to leave. And how do you feel about it? And she says, I feel terrible because this is why I do this. And we have these people, these beautiful guardians of our elders who are working in these homes who don't have time to actually engage with them because their tasks are so so heavily loaded and I think that what I have is the gift of time because that's my role is to just go in and spend some time with some people and it's not it's not always a lot of time it might only be 15 minutes some of those one-on-one sessions and I think that what the elders see and what have said to me is that you seem to have so much time you spend time with me that's all they want and so if there was anything magical that I could wave my wand and bring, I would bring more time for staff to sit with them. I think that would be really something special. Mm, Absolutely. I think that, yeah, you've nailed it with that hammer. (laughs) (laughs) There's the target. There's the target, yeah. I've got a quote that I I have on the bottom of my email. You might have seen it. Share it with our listeners. Yeah, it is a beautiful quote. It's, whenever an elder dies, a library burns down. Uh, Amandu Hampate Bar said that. And I just think it's the most beautiful thing. And it's so true. And there's these libraries that are burning down and this knowledge and this font of wisdom and stories that that are burning down around us. And my my response to that is we need to keep these libraries open for as long as we can. They are precious. And that's why I, I do this. My elders are all gone now. I don't have them around me. I'm becoming my own elders. (laughs) You are. Well, yes, yes. We have to create our own interpretations and versions of what we're missing out in the world. And, you know, I think that this is a perfect, yeah, summary. You know, a lot of people don't have that special someone who is an elder or, you know, someone who showers them with compliments or does this or does that. And I think sometimes, yeah, we just need to create those things for ourselves and, I think that the work that we do also in aged care is also so rewarding because I'm sure even though they're not your relatives, you have strong connection with a lot of your clients. It's incredible. And you would, you would understand this with your work that and I, you do get close to people. You get to know people and you get to know some people that have been pretty hard to other people in their lives. They have not been kind to everyone. They have been difficult or been seen as difficult they 
they may have been judgmental, they, they may have been harsh or made hard decisions for whatever reason. And sometimes they're lonely and sometimes they are disenfranchised from that family that no longer wants to have anything to do with them. And you're meeting these people for who they are in that time. And they know that it is the last of their days. And, and so you meet them and you take them for who they are and without judgment, just with love and curiosity, I think is an important word there. And you spend time with them. And one of the greatest things, and, and one of the greatest things that I ever was part of was what I call a moment of knowing a, a gentleman called Harry. I'm happy to say his name, Harry. He just looked at me one day and he, I, I knew I had to ask him, I said, are you, are you scared of going? And he said, no, I'm ready. And it just was a moment where it was the unsaid, the stuff you don't say, you know, that we, about death. And he just put his hand out and he gave me that, that handshake and he gave me the, you know, that wink, <laughs> the sideways wink with a nod, a twist of the head. And it was beautiful and it was a tear in his eye and we just looked at each other and it was such a great moment. And those moments are just, I don't know, they're just incredible. They're shooting stars. Oh, yeah, they, they, they stay with you. And, yeah, you know, often people get surprised when they talk to me about, you know, aged care. They're like, oh, you know, you're working with death and dying. And I'm like, mm, not really. I've only really been with a couple of people that were dying when I was there at that time that I've known, you know, for a while. And then there, there was something absolutely magic about, you know, and, and I felt quite privileged to be there with them at that time as well. But I think it's more so about the fact that when you see residents, you don't know when is the last time you're going to see them. And sometimes you think, oh, yeah, next time, and there is no next time. And so that can be quite difficult to accept as well. So, you know, really focusing on the moment and supporting them right there and there because every minute of our lives is precious and, yeah, not saving things for special occasions or such. You know, every, every day is special and I've certainly learned that from the work in aged care. You really do. You really do learn. It really is something else working in, in aged care. It's funny, you know, I was just, I was just thinking, you know, like um, when this all started, when COVID curtain came down, I remember thinking, you know, there's this national plan to, I think I said this in a post, there's a national plan to protect our elders from this dreadful disease. But what's the national plan to look after and manage their psychosocial health? And I think that's in this time, this is a real, and again, you know, we've been hit a second time now and the nerves are up and I haven't been able to go in this week to some places at all, even though I'm outside the window. You know, we've really got to, really got to think about how we're going to manage the psychosocial health here because it's been a long time. Absolutely. A long time now. We're talking about, I think, March. And this is very, a very dangerous zone because as some family members say to me, they said, I don't know how long mum's going to be around. So, like, you know, this could be – I don't want this to be the end of her life. But we don't want them to get COVID, but we don't want them to die of a broken heart. No, that's well said. And, you know, we talk about quality of life, you know. I've never really – I don't really like that. What I think it is really about, and I, I don't remember where I got this term from, I think it's about quality of living. Living, not life, living because it's the active form of life. Because our elders are living in these environments. They're not dying in these environments. That's, they need the dignity and the joy, you know, and it takes time and it takes money. And it, at present, I don't see this, this so much happening that, you know, our elders 
we kind of see them as a society. I don't mean the sector, but as a society, we see our elders as going there to die. And this is what they think. This is what they sometimes say, which is terrible, a terrible thing. They're not. They're there to live. They're still alive. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it is a message that needs to be driven across because an older person stopping doing anything and perceiving moving to a facility as a place where they're disengaged with everything will only be detrimental to their health. But I think that that is probably a topic for another interview we might do down the track. Now, Moz, how can people connect with you and your work? Well, they could move into residential aged care and connect with me there. Yes. <laughs> um, they'll see me with a ukulele and a bowler hat dressed as a really bad vaudeville entertainer. Or they could go on to, I have a profile page on LinkedIn, which has got some clips of my work of both window therapy and prior. Or there's a Facebook page at Outside In Collective. So the Outside In Collective has a Facebook page and they can connect there with any of us because there's lots of people that do this. There's not enough. But, um, you know, we'd like to see more people involved in this kind of work and happy to share our knowledge. Yeah, and I'll share the link for that as well so that people can definitely connect. And, um, yeah, thank you for a very inspiring um, interview. I always enjoy our chats and I hope that our listeners will also learn a thing or two from this episode. I hope so. And, and thank you so much for your interest. And support in the work because you've been very supportive. And I know I met you at a very crucial time for me and that was a really good time to meet you. And you said a number of really good things that I needed to hear at that stage. So I haven't forgotten that. No, thank you. Well, that is another episode of The Voice of Aged Care Done and Dusted. Be sure to become a subscriber on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss out when I release the next episode. I'd love to know what you're thinking of this podcast and what you'd like to hear in the future. So please leave a rating and review too. Over on my website, wisecare.com.au, with one click, you can grab a copy of my three top downloaded resources on mental health and well-being in older age. Let's face it, this can be a complex topic and I want to give you practical strategies to deal with it. Go to wisecare.com.au for your free copy of these three amazing resources. See you in the next episode.